Well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, and I hope you do, uh, I'm going to invite us to go to uh, the Gospel of John. If you're a guest this morning, we have been going through the Gospel of John. Back in January, we started John 1-1, and every week we have been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Gospel of John. And here we are in John 14. And what we said from the outset is... We're going to take on the, the, the chapters and the verses that we like, like John 3.16, um, but we're going to also take on the chapters and verses that are uh, confusing, complicated, really challenging, uh, things like that as well. So we're just going through John uh, bit by bit. And so uh, we are in uh, John 14 today, towards the end of the chapter uh, 14, uh, we're going to pick it up with verse 25. And I mentioned this last week. Um, sometimes chapters and verses are really, really helpful uh, for finding things in the Bible. Other times it can be a little bit confusing. I think in this particular case, it, it, it's not necessarily helpful. And the reason is this. We are in what's known as the upper room discourse. It's the last few days of Jesus' life. And uh, so the upper room discourse actually is John 13, 14, 15, 16, and then chapter 17 is Jesus praying. And so all those chapters and verses actually transpire over just a few hours over a meal at the upper room. And so they're sharing this meal together, and it begins with uh, them gathering together, Jesus washing the feet, and we covered that a couple weeks ago. Um, but anyways, I think it's important, and I just want to kind of call that out. Uh, this is where we're at. And then after the upper room discourse, Jesus is going to say, all right, break. They go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to be uh, arrested. Uh, he's going to stand trial. Of course, he's going to be beaten. And ultimately, uh, he is going to be hung on a cross but he's got one more trick up his sleeve, of course, and that, of course, is the resurrection. But I kind of want to just kind of put all that in context for you. And so we are in the middle of the upper room discourse. And Jesus is going to lay out a few promises for us today uh, as he lays them to the disciples. Everybody, you're in John 14? Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for this uh, great uh, story, this great event, this great teaching, God. Um, that is, the disciples are freaking out because Jesus has told them that he is leaving, that they are anxious, that they are nervous, that they are they're trying to figure out what's going on next. Jesus offers them these words. And so, God, may these words uh, also be words for us today uh, because, God, I know that many of us have lots going on in our lives, Anx anxiety, stress, um, and all sorts of uncertainty. So, God, may the words in my mouth the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So a couple of years ago, uh, Ann Landers, if that name sounds familiar to any of you, uh, Ann Landers published a story uh, in one of her uh, columns, and it was submitted uh, by a young woman, and this is what she wrote. Uh, dear Ann, uh, my uncle was the tightest man I've ever known. All of his time, all of his life, every time he got, a uh, got paid, he took out a $20 bill and placed it under his mattress. Then he got sick, and he was about to die. And as he was dying, he said to his wife, I want you to promise me one thing. 
What is it? She asked. I want you to promise that when I'm dead, you'll take all my money from under the mattress and put it in my casket so I can take it with me. Well, he died, and his wife kept her promise. On the day that he died, she went, got all that money, all those $20 bills from under his mattress. She went to the bank, deposited it, and wrote out a check (laughs) and placed it in the casket. She kept her promise. Now, it was a little underhanded and not exactly what he was thinking, but I suppose she figured, well, if he can cash it, he can take it, right? God always keeps his promises. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, are the promises that God makes and the promises that God keeps. The Apostle Peter talks about these promises, and he says that they are precious God's promises are so, so good in our lives. They're very, very precious. Several years ago, uh, Time Magazine actually ran an article about the, the promises as they are laid out in the Bible. And it was, uh, the article was uh, about a Canadian guy, actually. And uh, this guy went through the Bible for 18 months, over and over and over, seven or eight times he went through the Bible, and he just recorded every single promise as recorded in the Bible. And he came up with 7,484 promises in the Bible, promises of God. Of course, that's a lot of promises. And I just, for fun, thought, well, if you were to take one promise a day, and just kind of meditate on it. How long would that take you? And I'm not a math guy, but figured out it's over 20 years. So if you just took one promise every single day from the Bible and meditated on, you, on it, it would take you 20 years to get through of all of God's promises. So what do we do with these promises? What do we do with the promises of God? And sometimes, as I talk to people about the promises of God... You'll see it on a coffee mug, right? There's a promise. We like to put them on coffee mugs. Or, or maybe we see a promise of God and we, we like, oh, I'm going to frame that. And, and we hang it up on our wall. There's another place to put a promise. I even know people that um, like to memorize uh, the promises of God. Not necessarily live into the promises of God, but they could quote and tell you uh, all about the promises of God. And of course, the question is, what do we do with these promises. And what I've found most often, I'll just say in my own life, but as I talk to other people, mostly we just ignore them, right? If we're really honest, too often we ignore the promises of God in our lives. And I think about promises in the Bible and promises from God, I'm reminded of that great old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God. Know that hymn? Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. You know that? It's not sitting on the promises. It's not, you know, hanging out on the promises. It's not, um, you know, just memorizing or studying the promises. But I love this language of standing. It's an active verb that we're going to stand on the promises of God. 
And that's what I want us to talk about this morning and look at these promises that Jesus is going to lay out for us. It's the upper room discourse. The disciples are freaking out. They're confused. Jesus says, I'm going away. Peter's like, no, I'm going to go with you. And Jesus is like, actually, you're not even going to go with me. You're going to deny me three times. Judas has just left the room. He's on his way to betray Jesus. And there's confusion and anxiety and stress in the room. And Jesus is going to talk about these five promises in just a few verses this morning. So John 14, uh, beginning with verse 25. All this I have spoken while I am still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the very first promise Jesus offers, of course, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come to teach and remind us. Now, every time we open God's Word is an opportunity for, us to, to, for the Holy Spirit to show up and to teach us, to remind us of what God is saying. And I just want to be clear, this morning, as you've gathered, as we've gathered for worship, the preacher standing before you, the one who's standing and speaking to you through God's Word is not me. This is the Holy Spirit. And I remind myself that every single week as I'm preparing, you know, messages, God, give me something to share with the congregation. Not my words, not my cleverness, not anything eloquent that I might say, but God, truly, that these might be your words for your people. And then if that's not enough, I go off every Sunday morning just before gathering with you all, and I just I put my hands before God and say, God, these are your people. These are your children. I'm going to just let go of the work that I have prepared this week. And if, and if you want to use something that I've prepared this week, praise God. But God, these are your people. And so I'm just going to lift these words from your scripture. And you speak, God. You speak to your children. You speak to us today. And so Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to teach and remind us everything I have said to you. Now, Jesus doesn't teach us everything. He teaches us many things according to our openness, according to our willingness. Because what I often see on Sunday morning and when I'm talking to people as it relates to God's Word, there are varying levels of openness. I mean, you just, when you came this morning... When you showed up this morning, were you open? Were you anticipating, expecting the Holy Spirit to speak to you today? Sometimes as I'm preaching, as I'm standing up here, I see some of you like this. Your body language says, I'm closed. Now you might be cold. You're, you're cold, right? But some of you look like you had a pickle for breakfast. Some of you look like you're analyzing my words, maybe even critiquing my words. Several years ago, I was in a congregation. It was a, an affluent congregation. It was a, 
wealthy, educated congregation, and I was a young preacher, and I was preaching a sermon, and I was using a sermon illustration about a mattress and laying, lying on a mattress. And over and over and over, I was using this word laying and lying to describe my action of this mattress. On Monday morning, I got an email from a particular congregant that I was using the word incorrectly in my sermon. And he was so distracted by my inappropriate or wrong grammar or language, that word laying, lying, I thought to myself, boy, what a shame. That guy just, he, he came to church, he, he left the door, and he, he was mad too, by the way. This wasn't just a, hey, by the way, great message, wanted to just kind of, you know, just kind of give you a little tip on your, your grammar. Oh, no. He thought it was an abomination, you know, that what I had preached on that. I kid you not. Are you open? You know, sometimes as I'm standing up here preaching, I, I, I see some of you sleeping. You know, if you're sleeping, it's not lost on me. I see you sleeping. We've had people snoring in worship before, Wait, you know, distracting. I mean, you've heard people snoring, right? And, and you know, on the one hand, I'm, I'm glad you feel like this is a safe place for you to get some rest. But on the other hand, you don't get points from God for just showing up physically and taking a nap through the sermon. Maybe you need to go to bed earlier. I don't know. And some of you are like, well, maybe you need to preach shorter sermons, right? I, I get it. I, I hear some of that too. It's fine. But when you're sleeping, are you open to hearing God's word? Or are you just taking up a chair? On Sunday morning, I, I don't know, I'm just asking the question. Sometimes, when I'm preaching on Sunday morning, talking about God's Word, some of you are taking notes. You're leaning in to the text, and you're really open, you're really trying to wrestle with what God has, might have to say to you. These are just some of the reactions, and, and I just lift these up as illustrations is are you open to hearing the Holy Spirit speak to you through God's Word? I can't, I can't force any of us to hear God's Word on Sunday morning. That's up to you. When you come through those doors, you have a role to play. And it's being open to how God might speak to you, how God might teach you, and how God might encourage you, and remind you. Jesus continues on. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. So the second promise, of course, Jesus is promising here is peace. But not just any peace. He's making a contrast with the peace that Jesus offers and the peace that the world offers. And the peace that the world offers, of course, it's based on circumstances. It's based on those things that are going on in our lives. 
So if you have a good meal, ah, you get some peace. If you're around some family members or some friends, it's going well. There's some peace. If you get a good nap, there's some peace. If your ball team, if your football team or your baseball team wins, you experience some peace. Whatever it might be, it's, it's based on circumstances. That's the peace that the world offers. And the thing that the world offers as it relates to peace is it's a roller coaster because when your circumstances are good, your peace is good. And when your circumstances are not good, you don't have good peace. That's the peace that the world offers. Jesus says, not as the world gives, but I'm going to give you my peace. And it's a very different kind of peace. It's a peace in the soul. It's deep down that regardless of whatever the circumstances might be, Jesus says, I want to give you this inner peace. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Philippians 4. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. By the way, he wrote Philippians while he was in jail. I have learned to be content with whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul says, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are out there in the world. I can have that inner peace that Jesus has given us. Now, sailors or uh, people who work on the ocean... They have this term, it's called the cushion of the sea. And the idea behind the cushion of the sea is, you know, when, when above water, uh, when, when the, whatever the weather is, like going on. So if it's really stormy and wavy and windy and all that's going on in the sea, all you have to do is just go below the surface. And the lower you go below the surface, the calmer the water gets. The lower, the deeper, the calmer until you get to complete stillness. It's the cushion of the sea, regardless of what's going on on the surface and the circumstances of the water. Jesus says, I want to give you the cushion of the sea. Whatever it's going on in your life today, I want you to experience my calm, but you got to go deep. You got to go deep with me. You got to walk with me. And when you get there, I will give you this peace. Uh, verse 28. You have heard me say I'm going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And so the third promise I want to lift up to this morning is that Jesus is promising obedience, even being subservient to the Father. And I got to tell you, I wrestled a lot with this particular verse this week. This can be a little bit of a tough uh, Bible verse for us. And if you've ever had the Jehovah's Witnesses knock at your door and talk to you about God and Jesus, this is the very verse that they're going to bring up to you. And they're going to say to you, see, it says right here that Jesus is not equal with God. Jesus says it himself, for the Father is greater than I. 
You hear that? I mean, Jesus just acknowledges that somehow that there is a hierarchy between the Father and the Son. And Jesus is going to, to submit to the Father. The Father is greater than I. I mean, does this mess with any of your kind of uh, theological ideas around the Holy Trinity? Yeah, I mean, this, this is kind of disturbing, and we kind of kind of have to wrestle through with this a little bit. What is Jesus talking about, that the Father is greater than I? And I'll just say a couple things. Number one, the Trinity is a mystery. We don't understand fully how the Trinity works, and I could stand before you all morning long and offer you metaphors and illustrations trying to describe the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they would all be flawed. They would all be problematic, and, and at some level, theologians have just been wrestling with this idea of the Trinity you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and, and most, I think, who are honest and responsible will say, the Trinity is a mystery. We don't understand how all this works. At the same time, while the Trinity is a mystery, I think what's going on here, we need to really pay attention. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about what it means in his particular role as God the Son. We, pro we proclaim this in our creeds, that Jesus was fully man, fully God and fully man. What does that mean? Well, for Jesus to be fully man, it means he's like you and me. He's hungry. Anybody hungry? I mean, he gets that rumbling in his tummy, right? Jesus would get tired. He would need to sleep. Jesus would experience pain like you and I experience pain. Jesus, what it means to be human is that Jesus was limited. Jesus willingly said, I'm leaving heaven where I have these unlimited powers and I'm going to earth and I'm going to become a human being like all the other human beings on the earth. So in this moment, in this incarnate version of God as Jesus Christ, a man who walked among us, he was limited like we're limited. And so when they tortured him, when they beat him, when they flogged him, when they did all these things to Jesus, he felt all those things. It's not like they were just beating him. He's like, well, I'm God. You know, he's kind of got some kind of force field or, or shield. He felt pain like you and I feel pain. And I think as they hammered those, those nails into his hands on a cross, he felt that. And of course, death by crucifixion, it's death by asphyxiation. It's death by choking. You can't breathe. Jesus felt those things. He died. He's struggling to breathe as he is there on the cross because he was fully human he said, I'm willing to give up my divinity, what it means to be God and be a human being. So when Jesus says, the Father is greater than I, he is speaking a truth about what he has chosen to do, that he says, God is greater than me because God is infinite. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are infinite. Jesus says, but while I am walking on the earth, I am not going to be omniscient. 
I'm not going to be omnipotent, and I'm not going to be omnipresent. I'm going to be like everybody else. So, of course, God is great. God the Father is greater than God the Son in this moment. Let's move on. Verse 29. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. And so the promise I want to lift up to us this morning is that Jesus promises to prepare his followers for things to come. He says something's going to happen, and when it happens, that's why I'm telling you these things now, so that when it happens in the future, you're going to look back and go, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. So he prepares. He he offers uh, this promise to prepare his people so when these things come, the disciples would be like, oh, now we get it. So it's, it's a very specific promise to the disciples, those who were gathered in the upper room. So when he's arrested, the disciples could say, oh, he, he told us. He told us that he was going to hang on a cross, that he was going to be killed. So they're like, oh, we, should, we didn't know this. He told them multiple times that he was going to die, that he was going away. And then he was going to come back again. Jesus tells them all these things. So when they transpire, they're like, oh. He equips them and he prepares them. Jesus knows about all these difficulties, painful. But he ultimately, of course, also knows he's going to rise from the grave. But he tells them to prepare them. The example I thought of this week and, you know, what this might look for like for you and me is that, for example, uh, one of you might come to me and say, hey, Brian, do you know who won the World Series last year? I mean, do do you know who won? And and I might say to you, well, I could tell you who won the World Series last year, um, but let's go to YouTube because, you know, YouTube is kind of an interesting place to go, and you can, let me show you who won uh, the World Series last year. So we sit down at a computer, and uh, we're looking at game one of the World Series last year, uh, Braves versus the Astros, and the Braves win, and you'd be like, well, that makes sense. They're, they're the better team, right? Game two comes along, and you're like, oh, no, the Astros, they, they're, they're winning the game. And I'd be like, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. They're going to win game two. And so you, you, you and I would witness together that the Astros would tie the series one to, one to one. Games three and four would go as you expect, that the Braves would win. Game five comes along. And all of a sudden, the Astros, they just destroy the Braves. And you're like, oh, my goodness, how is this going to end? And you are stressed out. You're freaking out. And I'm like, it's Okay. Don't worry about it. It's all going to end well. And then we look at game six, and you would see that the Atlanta Braves become the world champions, (laughs) seven to zero. It's all good. It's all going to end good. And you could watch that YouTube video over and over. I've probably seen it a dozen times. I just, I like to feel good about that kind of stuff, right? And I have to tell you, when I watch YouTube and and watch the World Series from last year, I'm not stressed out. I'm not freaking out. At the time I was, right? But I know how it ends. 
And this is exactly what Jesus says, is I know how it ends. And when you know how the story ends, you can have confidence. When you know how the story ends of the resurrection, you're like, hey, victory. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about all the, the challenges and the struggles and the ups and downs as we go through life because in the end, Jesus wins. Amen. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. I've told you before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe and you'll have that confidence and that assurance. And then he says, I will say, um, not say uh, much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. So the fifth promise I want to lift up this morning is that God can use all circumstances, even Satan, even evil circumstances in this world to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes I think we look around and we see the evil and we're like, I don't know. I don't know if God can handle that. It's too much for God. God says, no, I can even handle the prince of this world. That's how he refers to Satan, the prince of this world. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 calls Satan the ruler of this world. So there's this idea that Satan is active. Satan is busy. Satan is meddling around in your life and in my life, trying to mess with us, trying to get us to doubt Jesus tells us that, that the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy, and he does this in our lives, right? In so many different ways, he tries to ruin our lives. The Satan does not want you to have this relationship with God, and so this is why Jesus calls him the prince of this world, and Paul calls him the ruler of this world. Why do they call him this? The prince of this world, this, the ruler of the world. It really goes all the way back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, there they are. Satan shows up and says, you can, you can eat that fruit, it's okay. Did God really say? And in that moment, Adam and Eve surrendered. They surrendered to Satan. And through time and history, this is what human beings have done, is we've surrendered and we've allowed sin to run rampant in our lives, to ruin relationships, to ruin all sorts of things. That's why we experience death and all sorts of health crises. But Jesus, he never acquiesced. He never laid his life over to Satan, though Satan tried, right, in the temptation? Jesus was faithful to the very end. He says, Satan has no hold over me. See, sometimes we think that somehow the bad guys got a hold of Jesus and hung him on a cross. Jesus said, that's not how it happened. He says, I willingly lay down my life. Evil was present. And what the evil thought is they were going to have a plan in my life. He said, but I willingly lay down my life. The prince of this world has no hold over me. And so when we see the cross, it ought to remind us this is not a great tragedy. 
This is not something that went wrong. This was all part of God's plan from the very beginning. The cross is a symbol, a representation of God's love. And God could have done it with or without the enemy. And Satan wants us to believe that somehow he had a role in that. And he did. He had a part in that. But, but Jesus says, it's not because he got the upper hand on me one day on a, on a Friday afternoon. He all of a sudden got a hold of me. He said, nope, that was always part of my plan. I was going to willingly lay down my life. God can use even the most evil forces in the world for his good. And I don't know what that means in your life and the struggles you might be facing, but God can use it. God can use whatever you're going through and whatever hardship for his good, for his honor, and for his glory. So I want to close, circle back to where we started. Those are the five promises that I saw in the text this week. And I want to just ask you by, close by asking you the question, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with these promises? A couple weeks ago, I was meeting with a medical uh, professional and, uh, you know, a little conversation here and there. And uh, he said, so what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a pastor. He said, oh. He said, when I was in medical school, I got to work on a cadaver. He said, it was the most amazing thing he said, I don't know how anybody cannot believe in God when you see the human body and what, what, you know, what is inside the human body and how it all works together. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. I said to him, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with that knowledge? What are you going to do when you are overwhelmed by God's presence in your life and these promises? Because it's so easy for us to ignore in fact, that's exactly what that medical professional was doing. He wanted to tell me all about it that day. But he's not walking with Jesus. He's not part of a faith community. He just thought it was kind of a neat fact to tell a pastor who walked into his office on that day. I think if we're honest, that's you and me too. Too often, we don't live into God's promises. What the hymn writer invites us is to stand to stand on these promises, not just learn about them, not just think about them, but truly lean into them so that we might believe and experience his peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, that you are a God who um, hasn't just left us to flail about on the earth through hardship, struggle, challenge, whatever it might be facing today, God, and I know there's a lot that we're facing today just in this congregation. But God, you have given us promises. Promises of presence, promises of peace, promises, God, that you will never leave us or abandon us, that your Holy Spirit will continue to lead us and guide us. So God, help us to not just hear these promises, but help us, God, to live into, lean into, and stand on your promises. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.